This is Top Floor, episode 40. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 40. And if you're attending high tech or HSMAI's Commercial Strategy Week in Orlando at the end of June, I would love to have you come and record a loading dock story. You can sign up at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash doc. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now, your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. While many actors and comedians wait tables while auditioning their way to a big break, Tommy Anulis got a hospitality degree before launching a 10-year stand-up comedy career. After he was almost forced into starring in a Christmas special, Tommy got an MBA and some time in the trenches as a corporate leader in a national restaurant company, where he built an app for his 2008 smartphone that helped him audit the restaurants for which he was responsible. I'm leaving out a lot of detail that we can cover later, but Tommy founded his company, Ops Analytica, to create business process software as a service based on the audit app he created out of desperation years earlier. The company helps hotels, restaurants, and other businesses manage and measure the human processes for the company. We'll get into what that even means. But first, before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals with burning questions. If you'd like to submit a question, you can reach me by phone or text at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by LaPaisa. LaPaisa asks, how can I monitor staff productivity without seeming like Big Brother? Tommy, this is a perfect question for you. What do you think? So I think, LaPaisa, that what you want to do is get a system like Ops Analytica or another operations management system that the employees are going to be utilizing to work their shifts every single day. And then what you need to do is focus on collecting great data to help you make better decisions. And that's how not only you want to be doing that, number one, that's what your goal should be. Number two is that's how you want to communicate that to the employees is that, hey, we need to be able to make better decisions. And it's like, we can't just rely on hunches and hearsay. We got to look at actual data to make these decisions. But then number three, the best part is if you get people utilizing the system and they understand that you're helping trying to make better decisions and you're trying to collect all this data, you actually get a lot of the big brothery stuff that you wanted, but didn't want to like come out and say you wanted <laughs> ancillarily as like an icing on the cake, right? You get a big piece of cake, you get some icing on top. Interesting. When I was thinking about how I'd answer this, that communicating the why piece, you know, if people understand the reason for doing something and don't just think it's like yeah. a whim of you're crazy, then they feel a lot better about participating. Okay, Tommy, both your first restaurant job in like 1986 and your last restaurant job in 2009 involved sandwiches. 
You started making cheesesteaks at the mall when you were 14 or whatever, and wound up as a corporate operations manager at Quiznos. So are you just really into sandwiches? Absolutely. <laughs> legit my favorite food. Um, they wouldn't be like my execution meal per se. My execution meal would be prime rib, king crab, uh, baked potato, and French rolls. That would be, and then a uh, salad, uh, like one of those wedge salads, but with ranch, <laughs> not blue cheese. If that, if that was my execution meal. Now, you only get a $50 budget, apparently. So, what drew you to the restaurant business? Well, oh, well uh, let me answer your first question. So I love subs. So that's my favorite thing. Sandwiches are my favorite thing. I'm a type 2 diabetic. So it's like it's evil thing that every bite I eat, I'm like, this is so delicious, but also you're killing me. But at the same time, I'm like, yes. So it is ironic. I never thought of that connection before. But yes, I bookended my actual restaurant career and sandwich shops. I got into the hospitality business because it's in my blood. Literally, both my grandfathers were restaurateurs. They were both immigrants to this country, one from Puerto Rico, one from Greece. They both owned restaurants. And it just like felt like it was what I wanted to do. I wanted to cook. I wanted, I like have a hospitality sort of servant personality, probably, you know? And so I just was kind of drawn to it. But my parents, like they saw the hell that their fathers went through and they went tech, full tech. My dad was a rocket scientist. My mom worked at Lockheed. So, uh, but I just wanted to do it. That's how I got there. So you spent 10 years in the mix of that pursuing stand-up comedy pretty seriously before you shifted gears to tech. How did hospitality... And I know in addition to restaurants, you worked at private clubs. So how did that prepare you for getting up on stage? You know, I think that's very interesting because like when you're working, especially if you're a server in the front house, but even in the back of the house, you're on stage, right? Like you're having to execute... You're, you're having to be like, I wouldn't say the spotlight, but, you know, especially if you're waiting tables, you are, you're, you're there entertaining the table, you're saying hello, you're greeting them, you're, you're presenting the menu. So I think if anything, it was just that, it you know, it wasn't like I was sitting in a cubicle somewhere on an Excel spreadsheet, never talking to anyone like that guy in office space that burns it down. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, uh, I'm allowed to listen to the radio between 10 and 11 a.m. Like, I wasn't that guy. I was always on, like, you know, yelling at servers if I was cooking or, you know, just in the back of the house. Or obviously, if you're waiting tables, whatever, you're in the front of the house, you're on. And so I think that just gives you a confidence level because you're not like just scrolled away somewhere. You're, you have a confidence level, you're interacting with people. And that absolutely helped with the stand-up comedy, especially at the beginning, because at the beginning you don't know anything and you it's literally like all courage and bravado just to try to get up there and do anything because it's such a terrifying thing to go do, you know, because when you first start off, you have no writing skill whatsoever. Like I, here's, this is my foray into like the month before I did stand-up talk to my best friend on the phone. She was like, you don't want to be 40 and have a wife and kids and a mortgage in the suburbs and regret that when you were 23 with none of that, you didn't try stand-up. So I said, you're right. I got to do stand-up. And I was class clown in high school, by the way. So I was always kind of a No, that is I shocking. Know. It's crazy. It's crazy weird. Um, it came out of nowhere. And then uh, what happened was I like found an open mic in Baltimore. There's this comedy club called Winchester's on Light Street. 
And then I figured out that they did that every Thursday, open mic. So I went down there on a Thursday, late July, 95. I talked to the guy who was the MC of the show. He was like, hey, we're not doing it next week, but come back the week of the 12th and you can come and get on stage and just write some material. And so I did. So I wrote six minutes about back hair and other things that I don't get into. <laughs> and then, and so I had six minutes and I invited, and this room is tiny and it's by the size of my office. So, but I probably had like six or eight friends in there in the room with three or four other comedians and maybe a couple other people in this basement. And uh, I remember I told a joke and this is only something that comedians would know, but when you tell a joke and everyone starts laughing, People's heads go back, just like yours did in the video. Right there. <laughs> Everyone's head goes back, and it goes back simultaneously. And I just remember I said this punchline, and everyone's head went back. And it was like deathly silent in my head. And I remember thinking to myself, remember this. This is all you want to do. This is the greatest thing ever. Do not forget this moment for as long as you live. And that was it. Boom. I was like, I was hooked. So you that day, I literally... Oh, yeah. I was like, I'm a stand-up comic now, even though I worked at the country club. I'm like, I'm a professional stand-up comic. One show under my belt. Just takes one, man. I think it makes a lot of sense to go back and forth between entertainment and hospitality, especially restaurants. Like Everyone's heard those stories. But I don't know a lot of people who've made the transition from restaurants to comedy to tech. So can you talk a little bit about that transition into tech companies? Sure. So as I was always working, like, you know, I had an undergrad degree and like, even when I started comedy, I was in country club management. I tell myself in 10 years, if you're not making the same money in comedy that you're making at, you know, country club, you need to really reassess this because it's not just about doing one thing forever. It's about having a great overarching life, right? Like, and there are things I wanted to do. Well, my dad was like a rocket scientist and like, he actually wrote software for me, like in high school, like he made a Spanish vocabulary for me. Oh, cool. We had a Commodore 64, like in 1982 and he like programmed games for me. And my mom was in tech too. And so, and I was always really good with like, just like I could do crazy things with Excel. Like at a PF Chang's I worked at, I made the seating chart that like I built it in an Excel so that all the people would pop up on a seating chart, like an image. It was like crazy dumb thing I did. So I was always <laughs> good with like technology. I wasn't afraid of it. Um, and then at different jobs that I had over the years while doing standup, like I got, like I would implement computer systems for people. Like it was a food costing system for a while. I did that for like a summer and, um, and then whatnot. So what happened was I was at Quiznos. And I had done comedy and I had just gotten an MBA and then I was working at Quiznos and then they came to me and they said, Hey, we need to report on these 4,000 plus audits we're doing a month. And you need to figure that out. And their idea was that me and uh, this assistant that worked for our department would just sit there and data enter like a hundred question audit into an Excel manually, like in our spare time and (laughs) just magically report off of it. And so I went through the whole rigmarole of trying to buy something, but we didn't have the budget. And then I went to IT and they were like, yeah, get out. Pound sand, we're not helping you. And so finally, I just said, I got to do this myself because I'm not, I'm sure as hell not data entering all this data in. So I literally found a program to code on and I tied it to myself. And then I got someone from IT to help me download it into an Excel from a server. And, um, and then I just, that was my first foray into like, coding something or building something technology wise. So that's how I, I did that first one. 
Then a buddy of mine from grad school, the only reason you go to grad school, by the way, is just the network. You don't need a degree. But uh, he was like, I just got hired from this other company to go to this big company and they need to backfill my job. And you liked doing that inspection thing you built. Well, you'd be doing more of that over here. Would you like to leave Quiznos, sinking ship, and then, you know, run over here and try this one? But at the time, by the way, this new company was about to go out of business too. So he's like, you might not make it more than a couple of months there. But, you know, you'll at least learn this skill. And we ended up buying that company on an earnout because they wanted to get out. And we just said, okay, let us just pay you for the next couple of years and we'll take it over. And that, then I, all of a sudden I was a tech guy. Magic. So what is the problem that your current tech company, Ops Analytica, solves for hotels and restaurants? We don't. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. This has been a wonderful conversation. (laughs) Thanks for stopping by and all the best. Well, we, yeah, well, we do. We, we massively do soft ops. Our big, what we saw for them is this, is that business, hospitality businesses today have the whole world against them. You know, just everything is like inspiring supply chain, labor, minimum wage laws, COVID and everything that went with that, the whole pandemic, all this stuff that's been conspiring. And and the problem is, is that they need their location level employees, that shift level employee, whether they're at a restaurant, they're at a hotel, they need those guys to execute flawlessly every single shift in every single location across every, you know, across our entire chain could be the worldwide. Because Because right now, customers can get on their phone and they can destroy a company's reputation by just if they get irritated. And so we have to control what we can control and deliver a consistently great experience to every guest every day. And the only way to really do that effectively is to have a platform like Ops Analytica or you know an operations management platform where we guide the employees through all the things that they're supposed to do, remind them what they need to do, help them when they identify an issue so that, that we can help remediate the problem and also make that problem available in real time to corporate so that they can follow up and make sure it got fixed correctly or they can identify something that they didn't even know was an issue around their system so then you correct it. Will you walk me through an example? Like if I work somewhere that uses the software, how does it play out? What does it look like in my shift? Sure. So you would have your phone or your tablet. Uh, usually managers will use their phones and they'll let the, the tablets go to the employees. You open up the app. First page, the landing page is what we call the daily schedule, right? And it's basically all of the different processes and checklists that you need to do for that location that the top of the schedule is the one that's due next. And it just, you can look at your entire day because you'll see recurring processes coming in. There'll be some that happen every day. Like you're going to do a line check in a restaurant every day by 1130. But then maybe it's Tuesday and Tuesday is a deep clean task that only shows up on Tuesdays. And April is a month where we need to go check the HVAC before the summer starts. So you can see all these different layers of things that have to happen at the location show up on the schedule. You simply one click, it pops you into the checklist. And then the checklist just sort of generally like take you through a path type inspection where you just kind of walk around and check things, you know, Hey, is the refrigerator, you know, 33 degrees or is it 28 degrees and 28 degree refrigerator is not unsafe, 
but it's destroying your food costs because all your lettuce and tomatoes and produce are getting frozen and they're going to get mushy and gross, right? So like you just have to simply go around and check off all the little items. And what by doing that, we can make sure that you don't miss anything. Okay, so this is going to seem like a flip question. I don't mean it to. Can you talk a little bit about how tracking all of these tasks and kind of human processes in a business, like checking the temperature of the refrigerator, leads to a better customer experience? And the reason I'm saying that is I'm guessing that you can't like put smile or don't be a jerk on the checklist, right? So, yeah. what are the, how does it impact a, a guest or a customer? So I think it it impacts them in a lot of ways, right? So like, obviously, like one of our clients told us one time, like I can see when I see food costs go up even a little bit, I know it's because they're not doing their line checks. And so then he will go check Ops Analytic and go, yep, they haven't been doing them. Because it's not just like, so temperatures are important for food safety purposes, right? So I mean, obviously you won't be like running to the bathroom halfway through your meal. That's probably a plus to customer experience. But in general, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but that stuff's not like what's the big common thing, right? But it is making sure, for instance, that like if you were supposed to fall a case of burger patties so that ticket times, so that burgers cook faster, so that ticket times are controlled, that does affect customer experience. And uh, tasting sauces, like a lot of times what happens to meals, it's the sauces that the restaurant prepares themselves that are the ones that are off because someone put salt versus sugar or they made a mistake or they didn't taste it. Well, that can, you know, if I put, if I serve you a a $10 piece of salmon and I put a sauce on there that's inedible and you send it back, that's a bad experience for you. Right. And then also it costs the restaurant double the money because I have to go remake that salmon and who knows how many people I just irritated. But so it's all those little checks and it could be the bathroom was clean. It could be that someone wiped down the tables, that the salt and peppers were full, that someone made the iced tea on time. It's all those little operational things in a restaurant. And by the way, this is true for hotels, dentist offices, uh, auto shops, retail. It's all the same. They all have their controllables that they want to make sure they're doing. Um, but generally, let's just be clear here. We're not solving one giant issue that's irritating your customers. Like it's generally, we're not fixing this one giant thing, right? It's we're trying to reduce the sort of death by a thousand cuts that happens to people when they're not handling their business. And the reality is, is that their employees know what they're supposed to do. They've been trained on it, but they can only keep four items in their brain at any one time. And that's when they're well-rested and not stressed and not hung over, <laughs> which we all know if you've ever waited tables in your 20s, that you go drinking the night before, you do not call off your shift. You got to come in the next morning. I mean, that never happened to cruise. me, but I've heard tell of it for sure. Yeah. I, yeah. One time I heard a guy have happened to <laughs> I, I, I never met him personally, but it's like an <sighs> urban legend. If we're just trying to control the death by a thousand cut stuff, we're not like, you're not going to change there's no one major issue, right? Like those get addressed very fast. But it's like the thing about you have to remember about the customer experience is this is that it takes about three to five bad customer interactions with your business before someone starts to change their return behavior. Now, if it's a horrible experience, if you punch them in the face and like you like, you know, push your head into their food, 
then like, <laughs> you, you probably will make that decision quicker. But if you just have three mediocre experiences, like you go in and the bathroom was a little dirty and gross, or, you know, you got to send your food back and then it took like 10 more minutes to get it back out and everyone else ate their dinner or, you know, your cocktail wasn't exactly right. It's those little ones, but they start to add up and you, you have that happen once. And then you come back another time and it happens again. And then it happens a third time. Then that third time you go, ah, I probably just, I'm not going to come back. And, and, mm-hmm. but we, here's the thing. You never know when you're having a customer that's having a bad experience in your restaurant. You don't know if that was their third time in a row that they've had a bad experience, or if this is the first time and they've always loved you forever. Right. Well, and most people won't go leave a review because the salt shaker is empty. It just sticks in the back of their mind, like, and makes what they just spent less. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, I mean, like we all have unrealistic expectations of how the world works. Like, and it's interesting because the pandemic and all these supply chain issues, I think in a lot of ways have brought us back down to earth in some respects, there are limitations. And when, you know, we just don't magically make everything happen. But at the same time, here's what's happened is everything has gotten more expensive, but service hasn't gotten better, right? And like portions are getting smaller. We're optimizing food to try to make food costs better. We're removing not popular options off of menus because we're trying to reduce our overall food spend and make it easier for our teams. And, and everything's costing more now because gas prices and inflation, all that stuff. But I'm not getting more for my money. And I demand, like, because you're not the only burger place in town. You're one of 75 burger places that are in my immediate proximity 24 hours a day that I can get a burger from. So we demand more. And the best way to satisfy that demand for better service is just control what you're supposed to already do. What you've already identified as an issue. Just make sure you're doing that. You know, that is enough, right? If you just give the person what the brand advertising has told them is the thing that you do, just give them that, right? A burger in 30 seconds. That's it. Then I want a burger in 30 seconds. I want 35. I want 30. And I want napkins and a straw and my fries. I don't want to have to turn around and come back around and then complain that I don't have my stuff. You know, no one's going to do that. They just get mad and don't come back. Exactly. I have definitely worked at places that had like SOP binders or paper checklists, you know, before I had a cell phone, maybe when I was in nursery school. What are some of the benefits that you think of moving these checklists and stuff off paper and into an app? It's just data. There's zero accountability with paper. So I'm a district manager and I have 10 locations. I can't see what you're doing when you do it on paper or more like more accurately. I can't see that you're not doing your checklists in a timely manner to get you to do them on paper. We estimate that about only 20% of paper checklists get actually done. And most of those are pencil whipped, meaning that someone just went, yes, 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 yes. Because there's zero accountability. And that's a problem because people aren't following the processes when they're supposed to be following them. Right. And, and by the way, as like a quick side note, you know, you'll get a lot of like these, I call them dinosaur GMs, but like those dinosaur operators that have been in the business for 30 years. And they'll be like, dude, I've been in this business for 30 years. I don't need a checklist. I know exactly what I need to do. And that's like a BS lie that they're telling themselves <laughs> because what 30 years of restaurant experience does for you. And I guess I'm at 36 now because I just turned 50, even though I look 30, but um, is that. <laughs> 
you know, uh, if I've been in the GM for 30 years, that means that I've seen someone die in a restaurant. That means that I've had a storm blow out all my windows, that I've had to deal with these catastrophic events that don't happen all the time. That's what that experience means. But if I've been a restaurant manager for 30 years, I can't like, unless I go into the walk-in and put a thermometer into something to check it, I can't magically divine because of my 30 years of experience <laughs> that that thing is safe or tastes good. So that that's like a BS thing, right? Like that people are just like, oh, I've been here three years. I know what I'm doing. The point is, is that nothing like experience doesn't matter. You still have to go physically look at stuff and check it, right? And so first and foremost, it's just you, now you can see that people are doing this or not doing it. But more importantly, going back to uh, Lapaz's question from earlier, is that it goes to the data because like we help you identify issues you don't even know you have because you don't have any visibility into what's actually happening operationally in your business on a daily basis, like what's actually happening. People in this industry have always had to back into what's happening operationally by looking at a, a series of lagging indicators, sales, profits, costs, customer sat numbers, and potentially audits if they're doing them. Those five things are how most people judge the health of a location. They're all trailing. Like a sale happens after you operate. Profits happen based off of how well you operate. Customer satisfaction happens after you operated, right? Um, an audit is a like balance sheet, but nobody makes decisions off a balance sheet. They make decisions off an income statement because that's where they know where there's profit and loss, right? So like, Ops Analytic is the income statement in that scenario. And so you can actually just see what's happening in real time on a rolling basis and you can identify issues. But even better than that, you can then change the process in the system, change the checklist, change the process to address the problem and solve it. And you can just watch it drop off your radar as an issue that's reoccurring in your business because you have the means to change the behavior of the employee at the location level in real time. This sounds like a good time to take a break. We will get right back to my conversation with Tommy Anulis. After this, Tommy talks about why training is a waste of time, what would make him leave a restaurant before ordering, and how he almost starred in a Christmas special. Be right back. Top Floor is supported by SightMinder. In an online world that never sleeps, you can't afford to be off ever. So how do you keep rooms full, guests raving, costs down, and staff happy? SiteMinder is the world's leading hotel commerce platform that provides hoteliers like you with the tools you need to sell, market, manage, and grow your business, all from a single dashboard. It's technology without the need to be super techie, intelligence without the detective work, and simplicity without leaving anything out. To learn more about how SiteMinder can help your hotel grow online, visit siteminder.com forward slash top floor. As you know, we like to make sure that our listeners come away from each episode of Top Floor with a couple of really specific practical tips to try either in their businesses or their personal lives. You have access to this critical mass of data because so many of the companies that you work with are national brands. I'm wondering, based on the data that you see, what are maybe a couple of hot spots or 
universal problem areas that every restaurant, every hotel should be paying closer attention to whether they see this data or not? I would say that the current model of how we implement processes in the hospitality industry is broken. That would be the one of the biggest takeaways I can give you. What we've had to do always is rely on training, uh, more and more training, right? A uh, higher cost to get things implemented in the field. But the problem is that the gap, the training gap, which I should write a, a I'll write a blog about that now that I just said that. <laughs> I have to remember that was a good way of putting that. The training gap is that you can pass a training test but not change your behavior on your daily operations. Interesting. And that's what we've always struggled with, right? Because training is something we can control without an operations management platform. I can control by making everybody come in at 7 a.m. and give everybody breakfast burritos and orange juice when they're all hungover and they worked last night and closed last night and sit in the, in the dining room and we can all go over these 25 things that were changing in the business. And everyone can pass a test. And I can very easily show that everyone passed the test. But I cannot hold those people accountable through training to change the behavior, which is what we're trying to do, right? We're, ch- we're saying, hey, this process is broken. It's irritating customers. And we need to fix it. So if a listener is interested in starting the process of creating checklists to manage their operations, whether or not they use a software to implement it. Sure. Where do you recommend that they start? Like what part of the operation do you think is the the first place to implement something like that? You know, obviously if it's a restaurant, I would say you would just want to start with food safety because that's something that the health inspector, that's something that if the health inspector could ask for, they, they're not mandated to, but they, they can ask for. But on top of that, if you ever get anyone sick, then having consistent food safety records, temperature logs, uh, just some of those checks will really help you in court. Now, the biggest thing is this, it's got to be consistent. The worst thing you could do is have that stuff and then not use it because that will, the lawyers at Mailer Clark, who are the big people who go fight all the food safety cases, they will yank that out of you so fast and they'll actually make you look negligent. So like one of our blogs is uh, due diligence and due care in the hospitality industry. Due diligence is that you have a system in place that you're utilizing to, you know, just conduct checks, right? And for a hotel, that might be, hey, I'm confirming every day that there's no chair blocking the fire door, you know, so people can get out of the building, that type of stuff. I see. Or that my fire extinguishers work. It could be any type of safety thing. So due diligence is having processes in place to go check all this stuff. Due care is having something in place that when you identify an issue, that you track it to its remediation, right? So for instance, if you identify an unsafe temperature or you identify like all those clubs, right? Where the people all get like, there's a fire in a downtown club and everyone gets burned up. And then they find out that they had chained the fire doors because they didn't want people sneaking in the back, right? Like it's that kind of thing. Like I identified there was a problem. Well, they cut the chain, man. Like, you know, like. (laughs) Like, you know, you got to make it so that like you fix it. And it's those two things that if you ever end up in a court of law, they're going to be trying to pull that out of. So having the due diligence process, having checklists that you knew were being pencil whipped or only filled out once a week actually looks worse for you than, than not having them at all. But 
the other thing too, just real quick, a lot you gotta check with your liability insurance companies too. Liability insurance, you know, insurance companies are always looking for a way not to pay out on a claim. And there's clauses in everyone's insurance policy says that if you're not following local regulations and you're not doing that due diligence type of stuff, we might not honor the payout of the claim. So that's their out if you're not doing a good job. And most people don't know about that. And then they find out about it in court when their insurance company goes, oh, no, we're not paying your $7 million claim. Oh, my Lord. Good grief. All right. Well, let's lighten it down a little bit. (laughs) What is something that if it happens within the first few minutes of a dining experience for you, like you take your family out to dinner, what's something that happens and you leave the restaurant without ever ordering without eating? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, Okay. So if I sat down at a restaurant and I could see into the kitchen and I see paper and food all over the floor, or if I see, if I saw something that I like, inherently that was unsafe like i I, like the door swung open and i'm looking in there and i see like you know something that looked like really unsafe to me i would get up and walk out um i i have walked out of a billion subways because of there's one person back there working and i just saw the line and turned around that's the other thing too just the line right like the line is probably the first thing that would cause me to leave and then I see the staff working there. You know, you got like one grandma and like nobody else is helping her. And she's like making each sub and then walking back up. I, I would, I walk out all the time and that goes to speed of service. Right. And that goes to being properly staffed, but that also goes to being properly set up as well. You know, I, I've been to many a restaurant where, you know, you're there and you go, I need lettuce for my sandwich. And then the guy runs in the back and disappears from 10 minutes. You know, he's probably back there shredding lettuce and you're just like, what is going on here? That's like the big one in hotel restaurants. Yes. Like, oh, yes. Yeah. Time, never. time, forever, time takes forever, everything. Yep. But food safety stuff, obviously a super dirty bathroom, like a disgusting bathroom. Or if you can see into the kitchen, or you just see like if I just see people, because you know, if you're in the hospitality industry, I, I feel like you speak hospitality. You know when people are playing grab ass and not doing what they're supposed to be doing, they're on their phones, they're not paying attention. And if you've ever worked in the business, because you know that some manager at one point told you to stop doing that and go back out and deal with your tables, you know. So, like anytime I see that, I, I just there are a couple of things that will push me out the door: dirty bathrooms, obviously unsafe food conditions, like uh, greasy floors. Like there was a restaurant that went out of business by my house and they had, you walked in and I almost slipped on the floor because there was so much grease on it, which means no one's mopping that place. And so you're just like, well, they're not mopping the dining room. They're sure. So not mopping the walk-in or anything in the back of the house. So yeah, those are the kind of things that'll have me turn out or gross hotels. I won't stand a gross hotel. You really just added a lot of things to my gross out list. So thank <laughs> you for that. I appreciate it. I think mine are like in a fast place. Like um, a coffee shop or something like that. It's the sort of what you mentioned, like the being on stage versus off stage. Like if someone cannot tear themselves away from their personal conversation to wait on the next person in line, that's going to be a no for me. We are in a business of operations. That's all we do. And it's, it's tedious. It's hard. It can be boring. It's the least sexy fun thing that we do is daily operations. Because... 
It's just a lot of little tasks and a lot of little things you have to pay attention to. And it's so much more fun to work on your Facebook page and your Instagram page and, and, you know, come up with other things to do and new specials. But that's like, go think about the best places you go. The best places you go, the restaurant that's always busy in your town, it's always on an hour wait. It's an exciting experience to go to. They are operators first. They don't even have marketing sometimes because they don't need it because they literally just crush it. Consistency. They control what they can control. The food comes out right on time. It tastes delicious. They simply operate amazingly. You go to these resorts and the, you know, you don't see the carts in the hall and, you know, just the whole pool is beautiful and someone comes and brings you towels and cocktails and you're so happy. You know, it's the same thing. Retail, it doesn't matter. All these businesses, the best operators make the, all the profits. I, I, I have a, I like the Pareto principle and I truly believe that at any given time, 20% of the businesses are making 80% of the profits and they're the operators. I think you're absolutely right. Okay. It's time for us to predict the future. So reach into your magic trick bag and find a crystal ball, whatever. What do you think is the next evolution of tech and hospitality? Like, What's a tech development you would love to see? What's one that you would hate to see? So it's funny. I just had a meeting with these guys earlier today. I think robots are going to become more and more of a thing in our industry because of the labor shortage. You know, and and by the way, to politicians that, you know, I have restaurants in my area that are paying the minimum wage in Colorado is like 15, they're paying 17, $19 an hour. So they're paying over the minimum wage, just trying to get people in. But as you raise the minimum wage and as people have left the industry, robots are going to be working next to human beings and they're not going to be doing all the same tasks, right? Like you're not going to have a burger, a, a burger restaurant a burger robot that's going to be like by putting every topping on correctly, but you can sure as hell have a robot that's dropping burger patties on a fryer all day long. You know what I mean? Or the robots that I've been working with, uh, with another company here in town, uh, they deliver food from the kitchen to the tables. They can take people from the host stand to the table. They can take dishes from a table back to the kitchen and they can literally just take, they can, they can replace a human being walking with a tray to and from 50 times a day. And if you can supplement your staff with these robots and these specific jobs, I don't suspect that we'll have the entire restaurant being run by robots. Though apparently in China, that is a thing where you go to the host stand, the host tells the robot to see you, the food comes out on the robot and there's like three people working the whole place. You order on your phone. Um, that is uh, an experience that you can get in China today. So I think the robots are coming and I think we're going to see them more and more and more being utilized in very specific roles as we go. And I, I think it's more in the lower end sector. I think as you get to that higher end sector, you know, the fine dining, I don't think you're going to see that as much there because that really is about the human experience, but you're paying for that. But when you're at a Panera, you know, wouldn't it be nice if a robot just drove your $7 sandwich out to your table? You know? <laughs> it's always back to the sandwiches. <laughs> so right. I know. It's a good segue to this question. Given the struggle that restaurants, hotels, hospitality is having with staffing, and the fact that you have a hospitality degree, I think makes you a perfect person to answer this question. How can the industry make itself more attractive to talent? You know, I think what we have to do... So, okay, here's a funny story. In 92, I'm at hotel restaurant school in Denver. And I remember the dean of the school, it's intro to hospitality, our first class, right? And he's like, 
you know, the restaurant industry, they made huge strides where the average manager is only working like 60 to 70 hours a week oh versus God. it used to be 80 to 100, you know, and we're really focused on that. I, you know, it's interesting because we don't live in the same obvious world that we lived in in the 90s and, and coming up. You know, the restaurant industry for so long was like a, a boot camp type industry. You just took pride in getting beaten down by the world. You know, it's like, I came through a thousand hour shift. You know, I haven't slept in a month. 17 um, and, doubles in a row. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm so rich right now. <laughs> and uh, I got like 500 bucks in my pocket. But um, yeah, so I think what, you know, I saw a guy at the Colorado restaurant show talking about how it used to be you would actually interview somebody and try to, and try to have them sell you on them. But now the world has shifted where the, the guy interviewing is trying to sell this millennial on why they should spend their time here with me, right? So that's the first part is that, that that's already been a shift. And I think what we have to look at doing is we need to have more managers. I think we need more managers, right? Where you can have true work-life balance. So maybe they're not salaried managers, maybe they're hourly managers, and maybe you get... So maybe what used to be one role is now two roles, but maybe it's two 30-hour employees. And, you know, maybe instead of having five, you have four. You you can play with the numbers where you can go like, hey, if you work Thanksgiving, you're not working Christmas, right? If you work Easter, you're not working Mother's Day. If you work this weekend, you're not working next weekend. And that you can create some work-life balance for people. So many people that were waiters went to Uber before gas prices went up because they get to sit in their car all day and talk to people just like they did as a waiter, but they weren't greasy. They weren't on their feet. They felt like they owned their own business. And when they didn't feel like working, they just turned off their app and went home, you know? And so like, we've got to deal with the hours and the hard work part of this and and try to make it better for people. You know, I think the last thing that you said is really interesting too. this idea of having a sense of control and autonomy over our life's work. Yeah. You know, I waited tables for years and I loved waiting tables. I loved waiting tables, but I had no autonomy. So I became a marketing yeah. consultant instead. What's next for you and what's next for your company? So we are just really focused on growth. We are a bootstrap startup. We started in 2015 with our own money out of our own pockets. We've never raised money. We've only grown organically over the years. So we grow by selling new customers and then keeping them, right? So like we like that's all we care about is just taking care of these people so they stay because it's really hard to get new sales. And so we just want to get them in and keep them happy. Um, and so we're finally at a spot, seventh year, which is like a good spot to be. We're like on trajectory for uh, SaaS-based startups, bootstrap startups, is just to grow. So we are in the process of hiring a bunch of sales guys, and then we're going to have uh, we're going to double our sales team this year, and then we're going to double it next year too. Awesome. Okay, folks. Before we tell Tommy goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Tommy, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? <laughs> so. I worked at a place called the Grove of Los Angeles in 2002. I actually helped open that property. Uh, It's a mall. It's a fancy mall in downtown Hollywood, LA. And it's where the Mario Lopez show is filmed every night. And it's like the the guy who, Rick Caruso, who owns Caruso Affiliated Holdings, he builds the best malls in Southern 
California. There are just these amazing places. And it's a place where you're really, you can come and eat ice cream and bring your kids and just hang out and watch. Like we have a Bellagio style town and crazy movie theater with like Bellman costumes and stuff, you know? And, uh, and so, and I was a concierge there. So we, and we won like the wall street journal award for best non-traditional concierge that year and all this crazy stuff. So anyways, the first year we're open, we're going to do Christmas at the Grove and it was going to be a Christmas spectacular. And we had a big tree and they, it was going to be on a local uh, LA affiliate and it was going to be televised live. And then we're going to be singing and dancing and Christmas and Santa. And we, we make it snow every night at the Grove. And Rick didn't like the actors that they had cast to do the first year's show. And he knew that I was a comedian from like, hanging out with us down at the concierge desk, you know? And so he was like, I want Tommy to do it. And I'm the worst possible actor in the world. I'm like, I suck at acting. I can't say a line <laughs> to save my life. If it's improv, I just get to make it up off the top of my head. I am golden. But like, you put a script in front of me and I like literally look like a robot who doesn't know how to read and I'm ridiculous. And he really was seriously at the last minute, I mean, like a day before shooting, yank the actor that they had cast and that they loved, the director loved, the producers loved, everyone loved. And replace him with me, Mister Like Ridiculous, who can't read a script. <laughs> it would have been, it would have been the biggest. It would have been the best comedy tape ever, but it would have been the worst Christmas special ever filmed. And and I even told the directors, I'm like, you don't want me. Like you guys got to like fight this off. I'm like, I'll do it if he orders me to because he's my boss. But you do not want me in there doing this. It was ridiculous. So Thank did you? God it didn't happen. It didn't end up happening, right? You didn't do it. No, because I will tell God. you that I scoured YouTube for some tape of your <laughs> early days and I was unsuccessful, much to yeah. my dismay. I don't have it up there because it's all dated now. It's all from the, like the late 90s, early 2000s. And like, you know, we don't live in that world anymore. So you got to watch what you say. <laughs> you're afraid you're going to get canceled. <laughs> I, I am. I don't want to get me too over some stupid joke I made in 2004. <laughs> I've been working so hard on this company for so long. You, I have all that stuff's offline. Uh, I have it on my computer, though. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, now we know where to search when we're ready to cancel Tommy. Tommy, thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners had a great time, got some great ideas, and I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes from today's episode at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 40. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 